Happy Easter Resurrection Sunday. Uh, if you would, give us a big round of applause for our worship team and media team real quick. They've worked all week preparing for the day. Uh, ben Heichel and the media team and some amazing volunteers helped do this new stage set. They started Monday and tried to get it done before Sunday. Worked tirelessly to prepare a place for you. If this is your first time here, first time in a long time, either online or in person, we say thank you for joining us. We believe there's many places God uh, could have sent you this morning, but he sent you here to our family. We don't take that lightly. So if you can do us a favor, we want to honor you and thank you in the correct way. When you leave here, stop by Connection Point on your way out. They have a free gift, or if you're online, just text the word connect or find that connect card form right there. Uh, next Sunday, we start a new series called Hearing the Voice of God. We believe God still speaks, and we, he speaks in many, many ways, and we're going to unpack the ways God speaks and how he's trying to speak to you starting next week. But today is Easter. And the only thing that amazes me more, or maybe not quite as much as the resurrection, is how long people wait in line at Jack's for a sausage biscuit. <laughs> like, it's a crazy, like I was driving yesterday, I was like, it doesn't matter if you're here next to the church, if you're on Florence Boulevard, you're in Elgin, wherever there's a Jack's, it's just like, it's a tailgate party at the drive-thru. So it amazes me, but I'm amazed that we stand here to celebrate not just an empty tomb, but a risen Savior a soon-coming king, that across the world you can go to tombs of Buddha, tombs of Muhammad, tombs of all these leaders, Joseph Smith, all these amazing religious leaders, but there is no tomb of Jesus because he's not there, that he is in heaven. He sent his spirit down to be with us. That's why we can say the Lord is here in this place, but he's also coming again in a physical form to establish his kingdom here on earth, and we celebrate that today because our God is a God of victory, not defeat. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 20 to unpack this scripture a little bit. During COVID and, and during the past few months, we've started playing more board games at our house. I don't know if our kids just uh, got bored with all their video games and all their Snapchat, or they're just grounded so much from their phones they had nothing else to do. So we started playing board games, and they played Phase 10, and uh, one of the games we started playing was Connect 4. So one night, I, I didn't really want to play Connect 4, and one of the twins, I will not mention her name, I don't want to embarrass her and for her to hate me um, more than a teenager already hates her parents. But I said, okay, I'll play. And we started playing, and she dropped one checker in the thing, and I dropped another one, and I realized she's not going to set a checker on the other side of the board. I won and connect four with four checkers. Four. I thought, what kind of education are our kids getting in public school that you lose and connect four with four checkers? And that's the type of victory God has. God does not waste lives, opportunities, or checkers. He wins in every single match he plays. If you ever play chess, chess is similar to checkers, but there's much more strategy, more time involved with chess. And there's an old picture, if you'll throw that picture up, an old picture that was painted by an artist in France. And he painted this picture on the right that read dressed person individual is Satan and there's a person on the side who's playing Satan in chess for his soul so if he loses Satan gets a soul if he wins he gets to keep a soul and the enemy is defeated this is actually called checkmate because the painter was describing how Satan had won that Satan had this man in checkmate he also kind of slide Jesus saying this guy's a figure of Jesus that Satan has Jesus in checkmate Right, so for years, this painting's been sitting in this museum in Paris, France. No one ever questioned it. They just thought for the fact that Satan beat Jesus. One day, an amazing chess champion came in. He just stared at this for hours upon hours upon hours. As he stared at it, he started to realize 
that as Satan had this man in checkmate, he actually didn't have him in checkmate because the man had one more move. And with that move, not only would he not be in check anymore, but with that move, he actually reverses the tables and places Satan there in checkmate. See, we have a God who no matter what it looks like around you or around him, no matter what the plan of the enemy is, no matter what it looks like on the surface, whatever you are going through, whatever it seems impossible, we serve a king who always has one more move. And when Jesus came, the enemy set up this entire plan. In the garden, it started with Adam and Eve, that he thought if he could get Adam and Eve to sin, he would have God in checkmate. But God had one more Move in the, in, in the rest of the Bible, you see every time the enemy thinks he wins, if the Egyptians held on to the Hebrews, he thought when they were crossing the Red Sea, I finally got them. But God says the king has one more move. When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, the enemy thought I had him in checkmate, but God had one more move. When he placed him on the cross and placed him in the grave, the enemy thought he had God finally in checkmate, but God said the king has one more move. See, no matter what it looks like, the king always has one more move because we serve a God who is not a God of defeat, who is not a God of weakness. He is a God of power and victory, not just here on earth, but for all of eternity. The only problem is how many people walk by this painting thinking that Satan had them in checkmate? How many people overlook the victory because they don't pay close enough attention? Even with Easter, there's stats that 62% of people in America believe that Easter is some form of theistic or religious holiday, but only 42% believe it has anything to do with the resurrection. But 60-some-odd percent of people actually attend a church. So 20% of the people that go to church don't even know that Easter is about the victory of Jesus, meaning they see it, but they don't see it. And maybe for you, You've heard about the resurrection, but you don't see the victory that God has in store for you. If you want to stand to your feet, let's read John chapter 20 together. I'm going to start in verse 11. This is the day of the resurrection. Mary's there at the tomb. The disciples had just come. They left. Mary's here. Mary's one of the most devoted disciples of Jesus. And it says this, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, and they have taken away my Lord. Everybody say, my Lord. Not the Lord, but my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She saw Jesus standing in her presence, but she did not know it was Jesus. She saw the resurrection, a witness, but yet she did not recognize it. Supposing him, and he said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She's witnessing the resurrected Jesus, and she confused him as the help in the cemetery. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. 
But Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned. Meaning she was looking in the wrong direction before. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, or Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. Father, we thank you that we can celebrate this morning. Even looking back to last year, we celebrated in our homes, making each home an altar unto you and worshiping you and celebrating Easter with our families and our homes. We thank you today we can gather as your church, your bride, your people, your family. And Father, as we celebrate, we pray right now as Mary Magdalene saw Jesus, the resurrected king, but did not recognize him. I pray for every single person in this room and online who sees Jesus but does not recognize him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, awaken us and empower us to see him, to know him, and to trust him with our lives. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. This scripture's always kind of interested me because Mary was one of the most devo- devoted disciples of Jesus. She, she literally helped fund his ministry. She traveled with him from place to place, village to village, town to town. She walked with Jesus. She saw the miracles of Jesus. Many people believe she was the one that was demonically possessed by seven demons earlier on in the book of John. Like she was, received the ministry, she did ministry, she walked with Jesus, she saw him feed thousands of people with the loaves and fishes. She saw the miracles, she saw healings, she knew Jesus, she saw Jesus, she loved Jesus. But on the day of the resurrection, the first witness of the resurrection didn't even recognize Jesus right in front of her. Like, how, how could somebody who knows him so well and, and live life with him for three and a half years not recognize him when he's standing right in front of her? And then I, as I was praying, I thought to myself, how many of us stand right in the presence of the Lord and never recognize him? How many of us, God is moving in our midst or in our circumstances, in our marriages, our relationships, in our lives, in our ministries, but we don't recognize it. And what happens is we get so consumed with the other things around us, so focused on something else that we are blinded to Jesus being in our presence. Or in the same case of the chessboard, that you're so focused on your defeat that you don't see the victories just around the corner. That we become so focused on what the enemy is doing, we lose sight of what God is doing. And psychologists call this inattentional blindness. Meaning that you're so focused on one thing, you actually become blinded to everything else. Or you get so familiar with an environment, you miss something that stands out in that environment. Case in point, if you ever watch an old Western movie or an old movie set in, in ancient Rome, and you're watching the movie, but then later on you find out there's bloopers in the movie. And it may be the, uh, the movie 300 or a movie like Gladiator and actually show you somebody left a water bottle on the set and there's a modern water bottle in the movie in ancient Rome or an airplane flying over the set. You don't see it because you're so familiar to that environment that you're blinded to anything else. And they've studied this and studied this and studied this. This is why people swerve off the road because they're so focused on one thing, you're blinded to everything else. And so they brought these people into a, a research environment. 
is they had them there. They played them this video of people tossing a basketball back and forth, a basketball team passing it. And they told them, count how many times they passed the ball back and forth. So each participant comes in. They're watching the video. One, two, three. They're counting these passes. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. After all the participants are done, they brought them in. And the researchers asked them, how many passes did you see? And everybody's giving different answers. 28, 32, 46, 41, 6. All these different answers. And then the follow-up question was, did you see anything that stood out to you? Participants like, 50% 50% of them said, no, we didn't see anything that stood up. They said, so you didn't see anything awkward or weird in the video of the people passing the basketball? Said, no, we didn't see anything. See, what they don't know is the researchers dressed a woman up in a gorilla suit. And in the middle of the video, she walks right smack in the middle of the basketball game, stands, looks at the camera, and beats her chest over and over again, and then walks out of the video. 50% of the participants did not see a gorilla in the middle of a basketball game. Why? They were so focused on the task at hand, they missed everything else. I believe Mary had inintentional blindness. She was so focused on her loss, so focused on her disappointment, so focused on her frustration, so focused on the unmet expectations, she was blinded to the fact that Jesus was standing right there with her. So for maybe for you, you're in intentional blindness, maybe like Mary Magdalene, where it comes from past pain and disappointment. You can't see what God is doing around you through the tears of pain and disappointment. Or maybe you're more like Judas, where Judas sat with Jesus in John 12, sat with Jesus and Mary and Lazarus, who had just been resurrected from the grave the day before. And Judas is sitting there with Jesus, who's being anointed for death, Lazarus, who just died the day before and been resurrected, and Mary, who'd been uh, exercised of seven demons. He's literally sitting in a miracle, and he cannot see it. Because he's so cynical, he's concerned with why is Mary wasting this ointment when he could be sold to help the poor. So many people that are so cynical, they'll miss God moving all around them because they're focused on their negativity. Or maybe it's your familiarity. Where Jesus goes back to his hometown and he's doing miracles there, but no one else can receive the miracles because they're so familiar with Jesus, the man that grew up in the same town, that grew up next door. They knew his mama, his daddy. They knew his brothers, his sisters. They knew Jesus since he was little. They said, this is just Jesus, the carpenter's son. He gotten so familiar with the environment that Jesus didn't stand out. And to be honest, in the Bible Belt, we get so familiar with Jesus, many times we can't see Jesus. And so here's Mary standing at the tomb of Jesus, and she cannot see him. So why? Many times we can't recognize Jesus because we are blinded by our own pain and disappointment. She's literally trying to see Jesus through tears in her eyes. And her tears blind her to who is actually standing in front of her. And I think for us, many times, God can be moving even in the midst of our pain and our suffering, our frustration, but we're so focused on our pain, maybe of the past or disappointment in people or unmet expectations that we can't see Jesus clearly because we're looking through tears of the flesh. And I really think that's what Mary was doing here. And many times it could be that you're disappointed in other people. And your disappointment in other people prevents you from seeing what God is doing now in your life or what he's doing in midst of you. And for many of us, we could call that church hurt. 
that the disappointment in other people that didn't meet your expectations or hurt you in the past prevents you from experiencing the goodness of God today. There are so many. We've been through church hurt as pastors. I joke and I tell people, everybody's been hurt in church. The pastor gets hurt every single week. But I had to make up a decision in my mind. Am I going to deal with past pain or am I going to experience the presence of God now and today? Because if I'm so focused on my hurt and so focused on my pain, so focused on unmet expectations, people that say one thing and do something else, people that say they love you and then they betray you the next day, if you're so focused on past pain, you can't see what God is doing today. Or maybe it's disappointment in God that you felt like there was promises he gave you or he said he was going to do something or prayers that were not answered and you're so disappointed in God that you can't see God anymore. Like maybe Mary was disappointed that Jesus said he was going to raise from the dead, he's going to be resurrected again, or maybe she didn't understand and she thought that maybe he just didn't meet the expectations he set for himself, and now she's looking through her tears. In Genesis chapter 21, Hagar is in the same situation. Hagar is the lady that Abraham had a baby with first before Isaac. Sarah, Abraham's wife, says, take Hagar. I can't have a baby. You can have a baby through Hagar. She has the baby, Ishmael. Then Sarah gets pregnant with Isaac. And like any other wife, she said, you better get this adulteress out of our house. Like a good soap opera happening right in the middle of Abraham and Sarah's household. She says, she has to go. So Abraham kicks out Hagar and Ishmael. And they go a little ways down the road, and they run out of water. They're in the desert, and they run out of water. She takes Hagar, places this baby off to the side, hides him around a bush, and she begins to weep because she doesn't want to see her baby die of dehydration. And she's weeping and weeping and weeping. And finally, God speaks to her and says, what are you doing? She said, I've been cacked out. I've been tossed out. And Abraham's like the leader of the church. So this patriarch, this leader of the church, is dismissing this woman and a baby it's like you getting out of church at your most desperate time by people you trust and love. They kick her out, and God says, look up. And she was so consumed by her pain, her disappointment, her church hurt, she couldn't see that God had provided a well of water to save her baby's life right in front of her. See, when you're so caught up in your pain, you'll miss what God is doing here and now. And I want to tell you that your disappointment is God's appointment. Your disappointment is God's appointment. That Hagar, when she was disappointed, God appointed himself and showed up right in the middle of her disappointment. Mary, when she's disappointed, Jesus shows up right in the middle of her disappointment. Your disappointment is his appointment. Because Psalms 34 says this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Meaning when God says, sees a broken heart, he moves towards the broken heart. He doesn't move away from the broken heart. And he uses the brokenness to display his love and his grace towards you. In Japan, there's an amazing art form called kintsugi. Kintsugi is where they take broken pottery or broken clay, things that we would normally throw out or dismiss. They take that broken pottery, that broken clay, and they begin to mend it. But they don't mend it just like crazy glue or super glue like we do in America. Kintsugi actually means, kin means gold, sugi means to join, to rejoin with gold is what kintsugi means. To say, take these broken pottery pieces, and they actually melt gold to begin to rejoin these broken pieces of this clay or this pottery. 
So it becomes, it fills in these pretty beautiful seams of gold throughout this pottery. Actually makes the pottery look more beautiful after it was restored than it was before. But in America, we live in a culture where if something's broken, we try to hide it and cover it up. If I'm broken, I try to cover up my brokenness. If I'm hurt, I try to cover up my pain. But in Kintsugi, instead of trying to cover up the flaws of the brokenness, it exposes them to make it more beautiful. In the same way, God doesn't cover up our brokenness. God doesn't just cover up our hurt. He makes our hurt point to the grace of God. He makes strength through our weakness. He says this, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God uses your disappointment. God uses your pain. God uses your hurt not to cover it up, but when he restores you, when he makes you better, it shows off the beauty of God's grace. Your scars are testimonies and altars to the goodness of God. Mary couldn't see Jesus through the pain, but she also couldn't see him because she was looking in the wrong direction. When Jesus called her name, she actually had to turn aside. Meaning she was so focused on her pain, so focused on what was going on at the tomb, she was so focused on the tomb and what happened to the body of Jesus that she didn't see Jesus right here because she was faced the wrong direction. She was looking for hope in the dead place of the tomb instead of in the resurrected Savior. And we, as people, spend so much time looking for hope in dead places. Whether it's social media, whether that's vices that you may choose to deal with, and you're looking for hope, and it never satisfies. And not only does it not satisfy, but it distracts you from where true living hope actually comes from. And it comes from a resurrected king, not a dead savior. And she missed it completely. And he says, turn aside. And Jesus said, who is it that you're looking for? Who are you seeking? And in this question, when you look at it in the Greek, it's a question not just saying, like a name, who are you seeking? It was trying to dig deeper and to try to help Mary realize your view of me is too small. Your view of me is too small. Your view is limited to a human body, a human person. But I'm so much more than that. I'm not just a, a teacher. I'm not just a rabbi like you just mentioned. I'm not just a person who died on the cross. I'm a person who died on the cross for your sins that I was resurrected to show you that I am exactly who I said I am, that I am the Son of God. Me and the Father are one. He was trying to use us to dig deeper. How many of us miss Jesus because we're so busy looking for a teacher or a self-help guide or a motivator or somebody to help us just in life when he's so much more than that? He is not a man. He is not a teacher. He is God in the flesh. And if you look at him as, as God, you get everything. If you serve him as Lord, you get all of Jesus. You get the healer. You get the helper. You get the comforter. You get the deliverer. You get the redeemer. You get everything. But if you're looking for just a body, you'll be disappointed. And he missed it. She missed it right there. Here's what Colossians says, 115 uh, and then through 20. It says this about Jesus, describing Jesus. Now, this, this scripture will change the way you see Jesus if you actually believe it and trust it. It says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I mean, if you want to see God, just look at Jesus. 
If you want to see what God acts like, what, how God loves, how God treats people, just look at Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not, uh, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth and in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This scripture is saying that Jesus, even though he was man, he was much more than man. He was God in the flesh. But Mary was seeking just the flesh. She was looking to take his body. She said, just tell me where he is and I'll take the body and lay him myself. She was saying, let me find the body of Jesus so I'll take him, I'll put him in another grave. She was so consumed with the body of Jesus. We're not concerned about the body of Jesus. We're concerned that he is resurrected, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming again. Our hope is not in the tomb. Our hope is in the resurrection. Who are you seeking? Like when you're, when you're in trouble, when you break the law, you don't need a law book. You need a lawyer. When you're sick, you don't need WebMD unless you're Toya Gorley. WebMD, doctors are kind of both the same. WebMD will make you think that every symptom you have is death tomorrow. Like literally it starts with, well, I have a, I have a stuffy nose. They'll say, well, stuffy nose, it could be a cold, could be uh, pneumonia, could be corona, could be go to the ER now, you're going to die within 30 seconds. Like when you're sick, you don't need WebMD. You need a healer or a doctor. Listen, when you're broken on the inside, you don't need a self-help God. You need somebody who created you that knows how to restore you back. See, if you come to Jesus as a motivator of self-help, you may have some things change in your life, but Jesus transforms you from the inside out, but only if you know him as king. Only if you know him as king. See, Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. In theology, we call that a hypostatic union, meaning it's not like he's 50% God and 50% man. He was all God and all man. And in doing so, when he came to earth, in Philippians 2, it says he set aside, he poured himself, he set aside his godliness and his power so he could understand everything we go through. And so the way I equate it is me and RJ, our love language is wrestling. So for years, it's turning 15 in November. For years, it's been a pretty easy battle. But recently, he started working out. He's getting a little bit stronger. So now I have to actually work a little bit. So the day he punched me in my rib when I went looking. And I, it was probably, is DHR in here? <laughs> it was borderline child abuse. And Toy's like, Bob, you better not do that again. I said, he's a grown man. He's hit puberty. He thinks he's grown. I will take him out like a grown man. So we've been wrestling for years. And so for me to wrestle with him at any moment, I could really hurt him if I tried. But that was kind of our love language. That's how guys bond. That's how I bonded with him. So in order to wrestle with him, to, to connect with him, to, to love on him, to comfort him, to embrace him, to be with him, I had to set aside some of my power, some of my experience, some of my knowledge. But when I set that aside, I got to get closer to my son. In the same way, Jesus, fully God, came to earth and set aside some of his power, 
set aside some of his abilities so he could get closer to you and I and embrace us and connect with us to understand us, to love us at a deeper level. That is a king that is approachable. That's why we can go boldly into the throne room of God because of a king who set aside his powers to draw us close we'd follow him from here into eternity. One person said this, if you sincerely seek God, God will make his existence evident to you. That if you're truly seeking Jesus as king, this is my testimony. That when you truly seek Jesus as king, not as a self-help guru, not as somebody just to get you through your problems, not somebody just to just restore you. When you begin to seek him, God, I want to know you. I want to see you. I want to know who you are in every single way. God will begin to make himself real to you in ways you cannot imagine. And Jeremiah 29 says, when you seek him, you will find him. But it starts with you seeking after. Mary was seeking, but she was seeking in the wrong direction. You have to turn aside and begin to seek the one who created you. And then once you do, when Jesus becomes my Lord instead of the Lord, everything begins to change. When Jesus becomes my Lord instead of the Lord, everything begins to change. She said it. She said, who... Who do people say that the Son of Man is, is what he was talking to Peter. Who do they say that the Son of Man is? And some said John the Baptist, others said Elijah, others said Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then he said, but who do you say that I am, Peter? See, in the Bible Belt, it's really easy to be like, well, you know, I know the Lord. Or, or depending on how country you are, you be like, well, you know, the man upstairs. Or he talks to people, hey, are you, are you saved? Do you believe in Jesus? Well, my, my granddaddy was a deacon at the Second Baptist Church on Tuscaloosa Street. I didn't ask about your granddaddy. I asked about you. See, because as long as he's the Lord, it's not personal. And Jesus did not die to pass on religion from generation to generation. See, Christianity is not a, a, a belief system. It's not a, a doctrine that you pass on from father to son, from son to son. It's not that they be passed on. It has to be experienced. It has to be my Lord, my Savior, my Deliverer, my Healer. Until he's mine, he's not real. And that's why Mary's at the tomb when some of the other disciples and followers are not because she had experienced his mercy. She had experienced his love, and he was my Lord. See, until he's my Lord, nothing really changes in my life because my life changes in proportion to the amount of room I give him to work in my life. C.S. Lewis, one of the great writers, one of my favorite authors, he called this the trilemma. He said, Jesus, based on his own statements, his own quotes, Jesus said, I and the Father are one, saying he's God. Out of those statements, the life Jesus lived, how he talked, how he taught, uh, how he explained himself to other people, he could only be one of three things, a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. A liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Meaning if he said he was God and he's not, he's a liar. And a lot of people were willing to die for that lie. And what kind of person would lie about the things that he promised them? Two, if he's not a liar, maybe he's just a lunatic, he's crazy, actually believed the things that he said. Maybe he actually believed, I and the Father are one. We see some crazy cult leaders in our lives. 
Maybe he was just like one of them where he, he thought he actually believed these things. He, he said them, but it weren't actually true. Well, then he's a lunatic. Well, the only third option would be, okay, if Jesus said these things, and he believed them, and they are true, he's not a liar, he's not a lunatic, he's Lord. And the resurrection is what determines and proves he's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. The resurrection proves that he is Lord. The only question is, do you see him? If he's a liar, mock him, reject him. If he's a lunatic, discount everything he said and just ignore him. But if he's Lord, you better serve him. If he's Lord, you better trust him. If he's Lord, you better follow him. So who are you seeking? Who are you seeking? Is he a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? It's amazing how much the world changed at the moment of the resurrection. The moment of the resurrection, the calendar changed. The worship of the Jews changed from a Moses-centered worship to a Jesus-centered worship. They, They changed their day of Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday just because that was the day of the resurrection. They began to celebrate communion instead of Passover. They began to lift up Jesus instead of Yahweh of the Old Testament. Like everything changed. The people that were scattered at his death, the people that were disloyal at his death became extremely loyal after the resurrection so much they were willing to die by saying he's the resurrected king. There is no tomb to find. You can go find Buddha's tomb or Muhammad's tomb. There is no tomb. Most religions worship at a tomb of some leader. There is no tomb of Jesus. They've never found the body because there is no body that makes him Lord, not a liar. Makes him Lord, not a lunatic. And that is why we need to look again at the resurrection. That's why we need to look again. The resurrection is the linchpin of our faith. Without it, we have a dead religion. Without it, we have no hope. But with it, we have everything we need. So I have five quick reminders of reasons why you need to look again at the resurrection. Not just on Easter Sunday, but every single day of your life. One, look again at the resurrection because it reminds us that God loves ordinary and flawed people. Look again at the resurrection. It it shows us, it reminds us that God loves and chooses ordinary and flawed people. He went to Mary to reveal himself. The first witness of the resurrection is a woman in the first century culture. Like he chose a woman, not just any woman, a woman who had seven demons. A woman that many people believe was the woman caught in the act of adultery that Jesus said, don't stone her. Like she was a woman with a past and she was a woman. Do you realize the first woman preacher of Easter was a woman? The first preacher of an Easter sermon was a woman. It shows us, it reminds us that if God can use Mary, if God loved Mary, he can love me. Because God loves ordinary and flawed people. Number two, look again at the resurrection because it reminds us that God will meet us where we are. Mary was not looking for the resurrected Savior. She was still back, looking backwards at the tomb. Yet Jesus met her exactly where she was. We have a God that doesn't say, come find me. 
looked around the world. It's not like a big Easter egg hunt looking for Jesus. Jesus says, if you just open up your eyes, you'll see I'm chasing after you. I'm pursuing you. Even if Johnny says, you don't choose me, I chose you. We have a God that will meet you exactly where you are. Mary didn't have enough faith to believe in the resurrection. She was still believing in Jesus, the human, yet he chose to meet her right where she was. Number three, look again at the resurrection because it reminds us that God rewards those who seek him with all of their heart. Mary was the last one at the tomb, the last one at the cross, and the first one at the tomb. Like she was devoted. She was seeking. Like she was at the cross when he took his last breath. Peter was gone. John was gone. Matthew was gone. Luke was gone. They were all gone. She stayed there through her devotion, loving him and seeking after him. She was the last one there when he took his last breath. And at the tomb, she was the first one. Her reward, she was the first witness to the resurrection. Her reward, Jesus showed up and called her by name. Hebrews 11 says, without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Four, look again at the resurrection because it reminds us that Jesus is king who defeated Satan, death, hell, and the grave. In a year like 2020 where COVID took a lot of people we love and miss, Maybe it was cancer for you. Maybe it was a loss of a husband or a wife or a mother or a father or grandparents or maybe even children. Like Easter's a great reminder that death is not permanent anymore. Easter's a great reminder that Jesus, when it looked like the enemy had him in checkmate, that Jesus still had another move. And for us, we get so caught up in the temporal things, we lose sight that Jesus is an eternal King in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. It says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the moral puts on immort- immortality, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. What he's saying is Satan is a wasp. I got stung by a wasp last year. Walked outside, it stung me right away. It made me so angry. And Satan is like that wasp. As soon as it starts buzzing around, you start trying to get skittish. And you start trying to move away from the wasp. And the wasp prevents you from getting to where you're trying to get to. For me, it was trying to get to my backyard uh, to get in the pool. And so the wasp is buzzing, so it makes me think I'm about to get stung. But Satan is a wasp with no stinger. He can only buzz. He cannot hurt you anymore. There is no fear of death. He cannot get you to be uncourageous or scared or afraid or fearful of death because death is not the permanent ending for me. Death is the doorway into my destiny. In Hebrews 2, he says, and death was defeated by death. That no longer is there power over slavery of fear of death. Meaning Satan is a slave owner to many of you that are caught up in sin and he holds you back in sin by trying to tell you that you could never be any better off by trying to tell you that if you confess your sin you're over and you're done but satan is a slave owner with absolutely no power all threat no authority thanks to easter 
And number five, look again at the resurrection because it gives us hope for now and for all of eternity. Easter gives me hope that if God can do that, if God can resurrect Jesus from the grave, then no matter what I'm going through, no matter how impossible it may look, if I look again, I will see God moving in my life. But not just for now, but for all of eternity. See, the early church, they didn't look at Easter as the final chapter of the gospel. They looked at it as a step of the gospel. They looked at the second coming of Jesus as the fulfillment of the gospel. Many times in church world, we think it's Resurrection Sunday. That's the victory. No, the final victory comes when Jesus comes back. And so the early church, they actually preached Jesus resurrected and soon coming again. Jesus resurrected and soon coming again. Again, when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he said, listen, this Jesus whom you killed is the king and get ready because he's coming back. One in 30 of the New Testament verses refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. One in 30. Titus 2.13 says, this is our blessed hope. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Meaning my hope, yes, I have hope because of the resurrection, but also when I'm going through hell on earth, my hope is that Jesus is coming back in the middle of my pain. That Jesus is coming back in the middle of my frustration. That Jesus is returning to make all things new. He'll wipe every tear. Death will be defeated forevermore. There'll be no sickness, no cancer, no COVID, no disease. There'll be no heartbreak. There'll be no crime. There'll be no abuse because the king is coming back to make all things new. Now, if you grew up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, in that time, Jesus coming back was preached a lot, but it was preached from the wrong motive. It was preached that you better be ready because he's going to catch you. When he catches you, he's going to get you. Like, who's wanting that dude to come back? Like, it was literally like, he's coming back, and if he catches you, you better be ready at any moment, because if he comes back and he catches you doing anything, if he catches you watching that PG-13 movie and you're 12, done. And it was almost like this cop crashing the party. So I've said this before, but when I was 13, I was eighth grade, I was pretty much raised myself. My mom and dad were divorced, and, and my dad worked tons of hours, so I learned how to cook myself and all this stuff. And there's a couple buddies on my basketball team, and there was a, a store, a convenience store close to my house that would sell anybody with cash, any tobacco product and any alcohol product you could buy. So a couple of days, my basketball team said, let's go to Bobby's, we'll go to, to the Caps Gap store and we'll, just, we'll stock up. I was like, cool, man, my dad's gone all day, it's a Saturday, he's working, we're good. So we get on our bicycles. We got a little cash, we go to this Caps Gap store, we get every wine cooler and Zima money can buy. We're tough guys, Zima. Get our Zima. We get some cigars, some cigarettes, some dip. I remember riding back to my house. Mike in front of us had a cigar, and it looked like a freight train. Just smoke. I was like, man, Mike's cool. We get back at the, the kitchen table. We're sitting around the table. I'll never forget. There's Zima and wine coolers, cigarettes, cigars, dip, all on this table. I mean, like, we're cool. I look at Mike. Mike's got a cigar in his mouth. He's got a dip in his mouth and a Zima in his mouth. I said, man, Mike is the coolest dude I ever met. He's already, he's in eighth grade, he's hit puberty twice by now. Like, he's the dude. Look at him. And by that time, I heard these keys jingling in the door. We looked around, I was like, oh, oh, no. 
That's my dad. So we scooped up all the Zima, all the wine, all the cigarettes, all the dip, all, and we just go back to my bedroom and shove them underneath my bed. Come back out. I said, hey, Dad, can you take us to the mall? He said, oh, yeah, jump in the car. I'm like, cool, man, we, we got away with this. We're good. We get in the car, pull up to the mall. Mike, you know, the coolest dude on the planet, hit puberty twice, smokes cigars, dips, and drinks at the same time, gets out of the car. My other buddy, Britt, gets out of the car. But that says, hey, just stay just a minute. He said, hey, I know you're smoking. I said, Psh. What are you talking about? He said, Bobby, I know you were smoking. I said, Dad, you, you must be smoking. He said, no, I saw the trail of cigarettes from the dining room table all the way back to your bedroom that you dropped. He said, I'm just going to tell you, it's probably not a good habit to start. That was the talk at 13. And so I've always thought of Jesus coming back. It's like my dad coming home and catching me doing something I'm not supposed to do. But the deeper I grow and the more I get closer to God, I realize God's not a cop trying to crash the party. It's more like, you know the story of the prodigal son, where the prodigal son comes back home and the father's waiting for a son. The coming of Jesus is like that story in reverse, where God expects us to be the sons waiting for the father to return. And God is this, this prodigal father that's coming back from heaven to earth, and he's coming back and he's waiting to see if people are going to be expecting him or not. He's looking for a bride that's waiting for daddy to come home. When RJ was little, I was working like 90 hours a week and I hadn't seen him. He's a little fat little baby with diapers on. I remember one day I got home early, parked my van in the, in the driveway. I got out and he was peeking through the little side light windows in the door. And as I opened the door, he just reached up and said, daddy, that is what God is wanting when he returns home. And it's going to get worse before he comes. You read Matthew 24, you read 1 Thessalonians 5. It gets worse before he comes. It looks like the enemy starts to win again. It looks like crime increases. It looks like the church is persecuted. It looks like things begin to break and shift on earth. And it looks like all the promises of God are vain and nil. But just like on the chess game the first time, when God thought he had, or when Satan thought he had Jesus locked away in the tomb, God said, I have one more move. The next time when Jesus comes back, Satan's gonna be like, we got it. The church is weakened, the church is persecuted, the world is turning against the church, the people are weak, they're starting to turn their backs on Jesus. As soon as the enemy thinks he has victory, God says, hold up, I've got one more move. So look again. That's my prayer for you to look again. In the middle of your pain, in the middle of your disappointment, in the middle of your brokenness, in the middle of your seeking, look at Jesus again. Don't look at church. Don't look at your mama or daddy's religion. Don't look at what somebody told you. Look at Jesus again. He's either resurrected Lord or a dead liar or a dead lunatic. And the resurrection points us to the resurrected Lord. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes just for a quick moment. Mary was in the midst of the greatest miracle the world had ever seen, but she could not recognize it. She couldn't see through her tears. She couldn't see because she was facing the wrong direction. And so my question for you would be, how many times have you been in the presence of Jesus and not recognized it? 
How many times have you come to church and gone through the routine and not recognized it? How many times have you come to church on Easter Sunday and gone through the routine, put on your new clothes, took your picture, went to grandmama's house for, for Easter dinner, did an Easter egg hunt, but you didn't recognize the resurrected king? Maybe for you it's disappointment that maybe prayers were not answered or somebody hurts you. You use that as the shield to prevent you from pursuing the resurrected king. Or maybe you're seeking the wrong thing. Maybe you're seeking somebody to just help your life get through instead of looking for somebody who wants to take your life and give you a new one. When he becomes my Lord instead of the Lord, everything else will change. And I'm here to tell you, I don't know when he's coming, but he's coming back. And he's looking for people who are waiting and ready for him to come. So real quick, every head bowed, every eye closed. It's Easter Sunday. The cross deals with your past. The resurrection deals with a new future. And the way you move from one to the other is through saying and making the declaration and the confession that he is my Lord. He has ownership over my life. I give him my old life. He can give me a new life. He can give me whatever he wants, but I am making him Lord. I repent of my sin. I repent of rebelling. I repent of being my own Lord. I'm saying, you are my Lord. I need forgiveness of my sins. I need mercy, and I need help. And I believe that you are the help I need. That's you. It's a great day for a new beginning. Great day for a fresh start. And you said, you know what, I, I, I need to make this my new beginning. I'm not going to have you come forward, not going to have you stand up. I'm just going to have you slip your hand up real quick when I count down from three, just so I can see you and pray for you and, and to point you towards some resources. Three, Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And if we're honest, many of us live our lives like he was a liar. Or what he said was not true. Because if he's Lord, he deserves to be Lord of my life, of my behavior, of my actions, of my sexuality, of my relationships, of my marriage, of my finances. And so he expects you to serve him as Lord too. Jesus moves close to us in our brokenness. Jesus meets us where we are. He just expects us to look up and to pay attention to him. And then one, just as Jesus said he was going to resurrect from the grave, and he proved it by resurrecting, he also said he's coming again. And he's going to prove, just like he did the resurrection, that he's coming again. And you, you become ready and make yourself ready by making him Lord. So that's you. Say, you know today's my day to make him Lord. Now, game stand. Just slip your hand up right where you are. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Father, in Jesus' name, we lift you up in this place. We think that the gospel is the good news. And no matter how impossible it seems, that you always have another move. Father, for those in this room that are making a commitment to you to be Lord of their lives, I pray right now for a refreshing to flow over them. I pray for a renewal of their mind, their spirit, and their soul. And Father, I also pray for preparation. They can prepare themselves by seeking after you and pursuing you with every single thing they are. And then, Father, you reward them by manifesting your presence in their life. 
manifesting goodness and favor and mercy and peace. All for your glory as we expect you coming again. In Jesus' name.